LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Martin Demet Friedrichsen who joins us to discuss nothing. Why is there something rather than nothing? Wouldn't nothing have been a lot less trouble than something? But can nothing actually exist? And has there in fact always been something? Other answers to the vast unfathomable mysteries of existence seem as distant as ever, we remain as compelled to seek them as countless generations before us. Indeed, as a species, we seem unable to truly thrive without some overarching sense of direction or purpose. However, in a challenge to this eternal existential quest, Friedrichsen pauses to ask, what goes missing when we look for meaning? In seeking some ultimate purpose in life, the universe and everything, do we devalue or even deny the present moment, the instant immediacy of where we are right now? Furthermore, given the strife and conflict caused by competing worldviews, religious, secular, spiritual, scientific, and more, is there something to be said for an acceptance of futility, an embrace of meaninglessness, or even the active negation of any and all notions of cosmic teleology? After all, denial of meaning needn't necessarily mean nihilism. Like so many civilizations of the past, we live in a time of crisis. Contemporary culture is caught in a corpse-strewn cul-de-sac, a war zone of competing cosmologies ideologies and dogma. There are two ways out of this destructive dead end. Turn back or break through, but no guarantee of either. One thing however is certain. What we affirm or deny, in thought or in deed, individually and collectively, has an effect. Even if we choose not to decide, we still have made a choice. Hello and welcome, Martin, and thank you so much for joining us on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Okay, today, Martin, we're going to be talking a little bit about, well, about nothing, actually. Um, yeah. But spun off um, a little book that you've released recently called An Anthropology of Nothing in Particular. Before we jump into that, if you could just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Uh, well, I'm, I'm uh, a social anthropologist uh, and have been uh, working uh, with um, do, conducting research among various subcultures over uh, the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, and, and one of my most recent projects has been uh, a long-term fieldwork among declared nihilists, um, which is, uh, has been the vantage point for, uh, for this book. Okay, so I mentioned, well, hopefully people will know what nihilism is, but again, I've mentioned, <laughs> I, I've addressed one or two of the key points in my recorded introduction, so hopefully everyone will feel 
that they're yeah. up, they're up to speed. But question about the book first of all, as you say, it's sort of essentially a book about nothing, but it's a slightly unusual structure for the book. It's like a collection of little vignettes, uh, mm. some fictional, some non-fictional, some are come. It's not quite clear where the line blurred. Why did you choose to do it in that in that format? It was quite disorientating, but quite stimulating at the same time. Um, well, it, it came from one of the, the vantage points of, of the book in itself, which was uh, a conversation I had with uh, one of the main characters in the book uh, some years ago, uh, who had just read uh, one of my previous books on boredom. Um, and he said that although he, he liked the book, uh, he felt that I was constantly trying to make sense of things. I mean, there was too much chronology in it, and there was too much analysis uh, involved in places or empirical descriptions where he felt things were actually meaningless or nothing was really happening. Um, so he challenged me to uh, to do a project and try to write something where that wouldn't be the case. Um, so and the initial draft of this book was actually much longer. I think it was around 200 pages. Uh, and after I finished that, I kind of realized that I had done exactly what I was supposed to do. I had started to constantly explain everything. Um, so I basically went through the entire book again and then, uh, I mean, erased chronology, erased any reference to uh, particular places or contexts uh, and put in these small bits of uh, fiction or part fiction basically to, to disorient the reader, to, to make it more up to the reader to reflect on the themes without me over-explaining them. Um, which makes it, I mean, it, it, it might make it tricky to read, but hopefully you actually, it, it forces you into thinking about theme uh, to a, a greater extent, or at least that's the hope. Well, I'd rather liken it to just picking up a novel and just reading it entirely out of sync. You know, just I'm going to read, the, mm. I'm going to read a bit of chapter two, then I'm going to read the last paragraph of the last chapter, then I'm going to go right into the middle. It's a little bit yeah. like that. You know, you kind of, things come up again and, and again, just recurring themes and motifs and, and characters, but it's kind yeah. of like the, the narrative is all over the place, such that there is one. Well, as far as meaninglessness or meaning goes, it seems that the history of the human race seems to have been sort of a quest for meaning, you know, trying to understand the environment around us. Yeah. At first, just from a survival point of view, like, what's this? What's going on? But yeah. then very quickly, mm. it seems to have turned into like, whether it was, whether, where it was the immediate earthly environment or looking at the skies, it was this sort of sense that there was, there was something going on, at least trying to understand mm. it. And then, of course, all these other layers came in, you know, even before written language, uh, there was like symbolism. And it just seems to be an inherent part of, of who we are. Yeah. And uh, right through, you know, the entire vast swathe of human history, it seems, whether it's from a religious standpoint or scientific or something in between, that it's been a quest for meaning. And, yeah. you know, whatever that meaning happens to be, even if it's like relatively, you know, insignificant, you know, for example, a lot of, scientific materialists will say well we're trying to understand our environment and the earth and the solar system and the universe and evolution biology chemistry physics um but they're not implying any particular meaning saying it's mm. bas basically purposeless but you know we can yeah. <laughs> we can we can figure out what's going on and then yeah. of course at the other end there's that you know that meaning is the fundamental underlying strata of everything but you pose the question quite early on in the book uh what goes missing when one looks for meaning. That is to mm. say, not just to say that perhaps there, no, there, there might be no meaning in all of this, so therefore don't spend all your life 
questing for it, but actually that there's something that you lose if you spend mm. all or some of your time, whether you're doing it from a positive frame of mind or a negative frame of mind, uh, but when you're constantly looking for, like, what's all this about, you're, mm. you're neglecting something else. Yeah, and it's actually, I mean, it, it's a question that has been, I mean, I didn't come up with that question. It's a question that's actually been posed um, several times. I mean, in, in, in ancient uh, Greece, uh, the, the skeptics and uh, and and uh, people associated with them would toil with that question as well. Uh, and with the basic question that has also been fundamental for uh, for a lot of philosophy of, of whether nothing exists at all or whether meaning uh, exists at all. Um, and I think if we go back to some of these very early writings, there is actually some significant discussions about the role of nothing and the role of meaninglessness uh, in in social life and what it entails or what you can actually gain from um, from not banning it completely, but 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 letting it in somehow, or at least acknowledging uh, that it exists as uh, as a part of life. Because as you say, I think a lot of people strive towards constantly making their lives more meaningful. Um, uh, or it can be, um, I mean, through uh, through religion or through uh, consumption or whatever it might be, or in fear of your own mortality. Um, but it does become a quest that kind of constantly pushes you away from where you are. Uh, and I think a lot of writings on, on nihilism or on nothingness has this aspect of saying what happens if we actually stay in it and acknowledge that sometimes there are things that just don't make sense. And then we can actually move on from it. Uh, so it's not a question of just, <laughs> just staying put or being inactive, but of of having a sense of reflection about um, what goes on when the meaningless actually stands forth as something that you have to relate to instead of just push away. Well, what you're describing is there is kind of just being with something as it is without looking for any other layers is a little <coughs> bit reminiscent of a very pop psychology of um, pop spirituality of recent mm. decades, you know, sort of like yeah. being in the moment, as it were, because most people are lost in the past or in the future or some combination of the two. What you're saying sounds a little bit like that the, the power of the present moment, you know, the power of now, as Eckhart Tolle would have it, but as in like now being inherently empty or meaningless in some way. So it kind of echoes that somewhat, doesn't it? And I can, I can see, I can definitely see the, the power in that in a way, because I think that whatever meaning or lack of meaning there is, I think a lot of people are kind of running away from what's right in front of them, because either they perceive it as somehow not satisfactory, or they just think that there, I suppose this is a quest for meaning again, that there has to be something better. And certainly, mm. even people I know quite well have conversations about these sorts of things, you know, in, in moments when <laughs> there's not much going on, things are quiet, like, well, the sort of what's it all about? And people often talk about it was better in the past or yeah. it will, it will be better in the future, you know, and yeah. then all, all, all the time you're, you're right there. And what is the past ex- except a series of nows? And what is the future except a series of nows? Yeah, and there is. I think. I think you're you're completely right that there is an aspect of this that um, that resembles. I mean, in Buddhist philosophy, for instance, I mean the, the the concept of nothingness is is doesn't have the same negative connotation as it does in in Western cultural history. So I think it's it is easy to trace a lot of uh, not Buddhism in its uh, how can you say <laughs> in its original sense, but I mean at least interpretations of Buddhism or, or, or things that have been imported into the West. 
where this aspect of nothingness or, or has in a way moved along with it. Um, but I mean, it is, it, it is a question of, of being able to kind of sit down and, and, and in a way push things away or saying, well, how much does this really matter? I mean, is, is this something that you have to focus on or, or run away from? Or is it something that you can uh, relate to as uh, a part of life that might not necessarily be fun or, or lead to something better, but something that just is? Uh, and I think this, these notions of always wanting life to be better or more is, has become incredibly ingrained in the way a lot of people today understand their lives. I mean, you have to move somewhere you, you can't just stay put really um, and you have to uh, expect of your life that that there will be something more I mean it, it, it's kind of a, 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 a subjective form of capitalism almost I mean there always has, has to be growth it has things have to lead somewhere otherwise it isn't really anything then it becomes this kind of nothingness that we are I would say in in much of the Western world in a way trained to uh, to be afraid of yeah, I, I absolutely agree with the thrust of what you're saying there. I, I would just say that for some of the characters in your book, you can have that sort of approach to life, but it doesn't, there doesn't have to be anything actually negative about it as such. Uh, like, mm. for example, if I was talking to someone who said, oh, you know, considers themselves a nihilist or whatever. I just think that it doesn't have to be that you can have that accepting of what is and not questing forevermore. And it can be an absolutely positive experience, uh, you know, in, in which you are actively happy. About the situation. Mm, well, definitely. I mean, I think, they, they, I mean, they, they, it isn't a happy-go-lucky book in any, <laughs> in, in, in any respects, really. So, I mean, I think a lot of the, the characters that I describe also not, I mean, it's not the nihilism makes them more satisfied with life, but I think it gives uh, a vantage point to, from which you can reflect on life in, in a different way. Um, it doesn't necessarily, uh, shield you from, um, from, <laughs> from being depressed or, Engaging in other kinds of of, of negatives, um, but it does give you uh, a position from where you can think differently, or you can perhaps even think more freely about life. Yeah, and I think it could be a relief for a lot of people because end of the questing. I'm not necessarily talking here about some you know larger existential meaning, but just about mm. let's think about it from a materialist or consumerist point of view, or you know having better relationships or having a better job, whatever. It just can feel like an absolute treadmill of like constantly just trying to get to that place where everything's all the ducks are going to line up, as we say here in the UK. And everything, yeah. everything will be, everything will be just as close to perfect, as you, perfect as you can get it. That can be absolutely exhausting. Mm. And kind of just, I was talking to a homeless guy not that long ago, and he had been in quite a, a high pressure. I wouldn't necessarily say high achieving, but a high pressure environment from in his personal life and professional life. And he said that it wasn't necessarily it was in some kind of state of bliss, uh, sitting on the streets, but he said it was, it was, it was a relief. Uh, yeah, because he he was able to actually essentially he needed to try and get something to eat each day, keep himself together, but he was able to just do nothing, which is just something that he'd mm. wanted to do for a long time. Yeah, and which is something that we, when we talk about doing nothing as a positive things, it's it, it it's almost something that we save up for. I mean, people all can talk endlessly about wanting to go on holiday so they can finally do nothing, because they're not supposed to do it in their everyday lives. Um, and then, I mean, often they'll get bored if, if they're on holiday <laughs> for too long. But I mean, when, when nothingness is, is actually promoted as something positive, it's because we have to carve out a space for it. Um, otherwise we can't really allow ourselves to do it. 
Yeah, and I think actually doing nothing from that point of view is very important, uh, whether it is lying on a beach, sunning yourself, which I, would, again, would find quite hellish, actually, because... Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, other forms of doing nothing are actually very important. It's having space, isn't it, really, within your mind, and also it, for your body as well, just to sort of to be and to, to, to recharge. And But that's fine. I mean, even the doing nothing of taking holidays is still seen within, within uh, say, a, a Western kind of consumerist paradigm is still much very very full of things if you see yeah. doing it's not really nothing and the doing nothing of somebody contemplating perhaps you know like sitting on a park bench during the day when everyone else is in the office or catching a train or going to a meeting or something is is seen as quite negative hence thinking about that homeless guy you know it's kind of you yeah you gotta do something you can't just sit around all day yeah and you certainly can't do it with other people Mm. I mean, you can't, you can't, if, if you're with other people, there has, something has to be there, or you have, you have an idea that, that we should do something together, or we should have a meaningful conversation. Um, but in a sense, I mean, the, the people that I know the best are the ones that I can actually do nothing with, where we don't really have to do anything, and which, which is a great relief, uh, as you say, and, but, but I think it is easier to do it, uh, if you sit on a bench alone. Because you don't have the expectation of of uh, of that I mean kind of sociality that would al- almost always involve something. I think my benchmark, or should perhaps I should say park benchmark, but my benchmark for that is those people that you can be with. Maybe you have got together with them for a purpose, you know, to go for a drink or go and see a movie or whatever. But at some point in that situation, you can be with them and the conversation can kind of just stop reach a natural conclusion and it doesn't mm. it doesn't feel awkward to not speak to not talk you know there's a certain number of people in your life that you can sit in a room and kind of both be silent and it doesn't feel weird and i think yeah. i think for most people that sort of situation is inherently very rare and very awkward and uncomfortable to deal with yeah but it can i mean uh- if if you're with people that you know well enough, I think it can also, in a sense, actually be a very positive experience. But if it's people that you've just met, I mean, the, the, this kind of stereotype of of people on a first date, where the awkward silence is is, is can be a complete deal breaker for <laughs> for whatever might follow. Mm. I mean, so if if you actually want to reach that place of, I mean, the skeptics will call it a place of tranquility, which is a place of freedom, actually. Where your mutual, there isn't any mutual expectation of what's going to happen or what you're going to talk about. Uh, a slight little diversion now for a couple of physical existential questions that that, mm-hmm. I, that I've addressed a few times, thinking about in terms of reality and what is. Pose the question: Can nothing exist? Uh, mm. Now here I'm thinking in terms of physical reality. Uh, yeah. You know, because of that question: Why is there something rather than nothing? Just in terms of you know the universe. Yeah, uh, the origins of 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 stuff. I think that's a thing, a, a question that the human mind struggles with. The idea that that nothing could be something. Um, yeah, I personally feel that nothing is kind of a, a nonsense. I I have a sense. Uh, there's no way I can possibly know this, but I have a sense and intuition that there has always been something. That there's never been mm. nothing. So, for example, the idea of a big bang, for, as far as the creation of the universe goes, and something from nothing. I don't really see how that can be but i think the idea of not only of there there being nothing but ironically I, the human mind struggling with that i also think that the human mind struggles with the idea of an uh, eternal existence but there has yeah. always that there has always been something because for us what starts ends we think of 
uh, you know, as above, so below. We think of our human lives. Everything comes into being and then it ceases to be. I mean, it might get transmuted, you know. So when you and I, our bodies pass away, that they, they break down and maybe become part of something else. But the essence of you and I is somehow gone. And even the idea that the universe has an edge, we can't imagine. I spent a lot of time when I was mm. when a child thinking about what was beyond the universe, and I just yeah. <laughs> couldn't get my head around it. So I don't yeah. know. I just want to get your thoughts on the idea of like, if nothing is possible, or if there always being something that 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 there's something that you can conceive of, or that you would reject out of hand. Well, I think in, in the interesting thing is that a lot of these um, uh, discussions that, that deal with the physical world, um, they, they have their counterparts in, in, in philosophy and in existentialism also. I mean, Sartre's uh, being a nothingness, its main point is that we I mean both things have to exist. I mean, nothing is. We have to take that premise just as well as something is. The thing is that we're somewhere in between. So there can't be one without the other, and one one of them can't exist on their own. And I think a lot of recent uh, debates uh, among uh, physics have 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 dealt with similar questions, um, because there are instances where we can say, well, we're approaching something that is more nothing than something. A vacuum, for instance, is in a sense more nothing than it's something. There's still there's still stuff in there. The thing is is, is is are there places in the universe where there isn't any where there isn't any stuff? Um, and I had one discussion, and this is I mean I'm on thin ice when it comes to a lot of these questions in terms of, of detail. But I have a had a discussion with a uh, an astrophysic at at one point who said that he believed that we should think of of physical reality in a sense as flickering, that there is al- always uh, nothing, and then there's something, and then there's nothing, and then there's something. And that he believed that they were close to being able to actually uh, prove that existence of nothing. But that it's a matter of, I mean, seconds or split seconds so small that we can't perceive them. Um, and he said it, it, it's the same as if you imagine a ma- massive ball of M&Ms. And each time you turn your back to it, someone will take out one of these M&Ms. And when you look at it again, it looks the same. And that's what something is for us. But the thing is that nothing actually exists all the time in his, I mean, in, in his view of it. And that, I mean, in space at some point, we would potentially also be able to prove the existence of something we would have to call nothing. So a place where there isn't any stuff. Um, but I mean, f- for me personally, it's also, I mean, I, I find these questions almost nauseating because it's so difficult to think about them. Well, it's so difficult to apprehend that nothing exists either in, I mean, at, at the edges of the universe or that it actually exists around us all the time, as would be his claim. Um, but we just can't perceive when it's here. It's interesting you use the word nauseating when you also mentioned Sartre. In, yeah. <laughs> in that, well, I, I understand. I find, I wouldn't use the word nauseating, of course. I, I would use the word mesmerizing. At worst, I would use the word paralyzing in the sense that, you know, you, I could, you can spend as long as you like on it and you come away and say, okay, right, well, I'm going to go on and I'm going to have my lunch now because I'm not getting any yeah. further with this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would take more of a, yeah, I, I find it fascinating. And I would also say that those questions I'm, I'm no closer to answering in my own mind, but I'm also okay with that. And I think that sums up my attitude to the, the big existential questions and the question of meaning anyway is that I, f- I feel that, that there is inherent meaning, that there is a, a meaningful drive in the universe. However, I'm completely prepared to be proved utterly 
incorrect yeah. in that respect. <laughs> and I'm, that, yeah. that will not be traumatic to me. So I don't have a, a religious perspective where it's very per- personally important to me that there is meaning, but I just sense that there is. If there isn't, mm. that's okay. I've always said that I wasn't convinced that consciousness uh, is extinguished at the moment of death, for example. But equally, I've said if when the human body expires, there's just a black void of nothingness, that, that that's fine. I'm not saying I would enjoy a black void of nothingness, but I won't be around. I won't, yeah. I won't appreciate that fact. So it won't matter. So I don't have a dog in the fight, if you know what I mean. I sense that there's meaning. If there isn't, that's okay. We'll wait and see. The evidence, yeah. the evidence isn't in yet. So I suppose that's a different perspective from some people I've met who are convinced that everything is utterly meaningful. If that was proven not to be the case, then they would they would just die mentally, mm. physically. They would be crushed because their whole existence depends on their being underlying meaning. And I've also met other people who are utterly convinced that everything's meaningless and they will resist any evidence to the contrary vehemently because they're they're invested in this view of the universe. Mm. And I think there is actually, I mean, that there is some kind of, of middle position between these which, which has a nihilist tendency in the sense of saying uh, or being in a way a, 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 an extreme social constructivist in, in, in terms of uh, accepting that, I mean, all we have around us in, in, in human society is a social construct. Um, whether it's religion or it's society itself or it's love or whatever we might think of, it's something that we constructed ourselves. It doesn't have any inherent meaning. But that alongside that, um, it, we can still live it as if it does. I mean, that doesn't really make, it doesn't make any difference that it's a construct. If you know what I mean, which I think is, is comes closer to your position, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that we have some evidence that, and I'm not probably not at the extreme end of the seal, but we've got some evidence that religious people live longer, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they can often be happier. Whether they're kind of, some people feel they're kind of deluding themselves. The point is that they're taking a, adopting a worldview and it's a, uh, allowing them some kind of peace. I know some humanists, for example, and uh, if you don't know what humanist position is, just use, yeah, use, yeah. look it up or use your imagination. I'm not talking about you personally, but just the listeners. There's some people, some really not bad people, but joyless people who are really quite unhappy. They're they're kind of I think they're happy that they're humanists because they feel that they're being realistic about the world and they're rejecting all this delusion <laughs> yeah. and fantasy. But personally, they get no joy from a the sunset or um, a mountain vista or from contemplating, you know, the cosmos. There's no sense of wonder, mm. no sense of wonder there, I suppose. But equally, I suppose I've met a lot of religious people who are, uh, there's no sense of wonder for them either. They're, in the same way, they're just following another rule book. So I suppose there's a difference there in whether you've got a materialist point of view, whether you feel there's some kind of meaning in life, the universe and everything. It's whether it's something that you're, that you authentically feel or whether you're just following a rule book or you see what I mean, a guide for this is how yeah. you do things. Those two different positions will determine in your experience, as it were. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and where there is also, I mean, the, the, the position that I think, at least some of the, the people I describe have that, I mean, it's, it's not that something like beauty doesn't exist. It's not that there can be types of music that you personally feel is better than other types of music. The question is that you shouldn't impose that position on other people. I mean, that there should always be a freedom to uh, uh, to not let that be <laughs> an issue of, of uh, discussion. So, I mean, that there are aesthetics that you can still appreciate, even though um, even though you have a, a nihilist or uh, a partly humanist position. And I think the, the, the questions you raise with, with 
with humanism is also, I mean, something that that you see the difficulty of that position uh, in these humanist societies, where the thing, I mean, people meeting without having anything that reminds you of uh, rituals or traditions, because they kind of push that away, actually makes it really difficult to interact. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the humanist society in, in, in Denmark have uh, worked on um, finding ways of creating uh, non-religious rituals, um, which in a way, I mean, it, it, it it's kind of sounds like a paradox, um, but for people who don't want to get marriage in in the Protestant Church uh, or um, or who don't believe in whatever religion, but still want to mark something or engage in some kind of tradition, and I think that's the difficulty of being a humanist is because is is saying well, how much can we actually allow or how much can we let in while still being complete realists, um, which does tend to create this position of um, and apathy is a is, is a strong word, but it, it verges. Uh, I think it verges towards it. Yeah, I think you touched upon something very important there about uh, imposing meaning on others, and I think that's one of the reasons why a, a, many people, humanists included, would would reject um, all these different levels of meaning because. Uh, religions have imposed meaning on others for mm. millennia or attempted to, whether it's like passively or aggressively. And that, of course, has left a, like a terrible legacy. And we're still seeing it today, of course. So I think it's being intolerant of other interpretations of reality. And I think if everybody, uh, was individually allowed just to come to their own impressions and interpretations, which of course are going to be colored by those that have gone before them. But I think what would then emerge would be quite a free flowing variety of interpretations of meaning and reality or otherwise and and people would find that there are common threads coming through uh we, mm-hmm. we don't need to say but i suppose the need to impose a worldview on other people comes from insecurity doesn't it because you feel that some people may feel that they have a view of the world and they share it with some other people they get together and they feel strengthened by that so they yeah. they feel threatened by others who who just say i oh, yeah, that's, that's fine do what you want but i don't agree this is how i see it then it's almost like it's, it's like strength in numbers like if you're if you're one person you see this catch with some cults, don't you? If you're one person with a um, a very tightly defined view of the world and how things have to be, if you can gather other people around you, then that makes you feel stronger. So the question is, have you got has has one got the power to be what your own one man or one woman, yeah. uh, you know, religion <laughs> yeah. or worldview yeah. or whatever it happens to be? Just say no one else in the world thinks like this, but th- I'm happy. Yeah, and this, I mean, to which degree is it actually possible to, to, I mean, take away these, the ways of thinking that you have grown up with or that kind of becomes inherent, I mean, the understanding of nothing as, uh, as one of them. I mean, because, I mean, I'm not a religious person myself. Uh, I also don't have a cult, but, um, but I mean, ideas of, of, uh, this totality uh, that often is is a part of religion, um, where you have a particular world worldview that is it is really dependent on on being everything. Um, I think it, it's it's difficult if you've grown up in a place like that to actually remove yourself completely from it, uh, or to be this one <laughs> one man not army but just one man opinion or one woman opinion. Um, so I don't know how that would would work without actually some of it still being there somewhere. 
whether it's your perception of meaning or your uh, perception of, of something like uh, like nothingness. I mean, in, in, in a European context, I mean, the perceptions of nothingness are very much tied up to uh, to religion and to uh, to to Christianity, um, because there was like there was a lot of talk about nothing and meaninglessness before Christianity entered Europe, uh, and there was a lot of talk about it uh, in the Middle East as well, um, in all kinds of manners, I and mean, both as uh, an existential aspect or as something much more concrete, as in numbers, for instance. Um, uh, the number zero is something that is a, a relatively new phenomenon in. Uh, in a European context, whereas in 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 uh, many other civilizations, it's 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 been present as just as a way of counting, but it couldn't be used in Europe because of Christianity. It was it was a, a heresy uh, for uh, for several hundred years. So I think there are these threads that are that are that become part of our thinking without even wanting to be or thinking ourselves as religious, that are still there. I mean, in in the way we uh, perceive the world around us. Yeah, you, you actually touch upon at one point in the book the church viewing nihilism as a moral threat that it was mm. it was somehow anti-human. Yeah, yeah, and because it's um, uh, uh, there is, I mean, the, the the whole question of 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 is there something or nothing was a question that uh, that you couldn't you couldn't actually pose it as Christianity entered Europe because there was something there was God because God is eternal so there's always been something. There's never been a nothing, and there will never be a nothing, uh, and that that kind of uh, uh, <laughs> that that pushed away. I mean, all these prior discussions of of uh, whether nothing can uh, can exist, um, and in I mean the context that that I describe in in the book, um, believing is is inherently uh, a part of what it uh, means to be a human being. That if you don't believe, then then you don't have the the qualities of what it takes to be a human being, because it's 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 a central aspect of uh, a moral virtuous uh, being uh, is your ability to believe. Yeah, because even if you're not in a you know religious cultural milieu, then as you mentioned about the humanists with their ceremonies, I've been to a humanist wedding, for example. There's still a way. There's still attempts to try and soften the edges of this lack of meaning to to, yeah. to to put a human face on it so it's like yeah we we think ultimately that uh you know this is all pointless and after death there is nothing but whoa we'll just you know we'll put a bit of vaseline on the lens and you know we'll we'll sweeten it a little bit for you so it's not too harsh yeah there still has to be an attempt to sort of it can't be too stark if you see what yeah I mean. and, and and saying that i mean even if we were to accept that there is i mean in in that there's been nothing prior to my life and when i die there'll be nothing afterwards but that doesn't mean i can't enjoy life while i actually live it which would be i mean that position that we can i mean you can you, in that sense you can be a humanist and say well there isn't uh, there's not any necessarily any uh, higher meaning with our existence or with our individual lives but that doesn't mean that we should stop living it Talking about religion, it's interesting how the, the parallels between some of the, the potentially scientific ideas I mentioned before about, you know, perhaps there wasn't a Big Bang, perhaps there always has been something and always will be something, however counterintuitive that is for many of us, you know, the, the idea of an eternal God, you know, there's just no beginning, no end, mm. and but also these similarities between the idea of the Big Bang and uh, let there be light. And in the middle of somewhere in the center of all that, there would be 
your nihilist or at least your person who doesn't attribute meaning to anything just going, oh, please, you know, just stop, yeah. <laughs> stop already, yeah. you know. Yeah, where it also becomes, I mean, even the questions that I, I pose in the book or the question you pose, I mean, is, is there something or nothing? From, from his perspective, I mean, that's an irrelevant question. I mean, the, the, the discussion in itself, the discussion of meaning or meaninglessness is, 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 is pointless. I mean, there's no reason for us to discuss it. Which would be, in a sense, an extreme nihilist viewpoint. I mean, and we didn't have, I mean, during that fieldwork, I mean, that was actually one of the premises of it, that I couldn't ask any questions about nihilism because they didn't bother discussing it. I noticed uh, just that at various points in the book, uh, different situations the characters are in, you talk about music, particular types of music quite a lot, rock and pop of various types. And I was just thinking about the ways in which culture, particularly popular culture, reflects the sort of existential metaphysical zeitgeist of you know of the time. A couple of names that came up, because I've been a music critic for many years, and I noticed that you'd mentioned the Smiths and Morrissey and some post-punk. And I, mm. thought, I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, so that's music I'm interested in. And then I thought, well, that's, some of that actually is very much dealing with the banal, the mundane, uh, yeah. the lack of meaning, a search for meaning, and kind of hoping that this all means something, but kind of like a, a horrible gathering realization that maybe that it doesn't and always looking for something i think particularly as smith and morrissey always looking, yeah. looking for something kind of better hoping for something better both music and and literature and um and and film as well i mean which was uh um basically what people did when we uh, when we would meet up would be to listen to music or uh, to to watch various movies that did reflect, and I think that's actually where I got the majority of of my material, was that it was possible to discuss that. I mean, you could you could discuss uh, post punk, for instance, uh, or we could discuss uh, Tarkovsky movies, which was also, in a sense, a central theme um, uh, in that entire fieldwork. But there are, as you say, I think you can we can distinguish kind of pockets of. Um, of uh, periods of time where nihilism, in in a sense, or discussions about meaning have uh, been prominent in uh, in music, as in the post-punk uh, movement in the late 90s and early 80s in the UK, for instance, uh, or in but also in I mean, in, if if you look at philosophy in in that light, I mean, the French existentialists that really um, gained their ground in the years after the World War Two and the question of saying, I mean, when things like this can happen, uh, does life make sense? I mean, how can we make se- Can we even make sense of, of, of something like World War II, which was central for Albert uh, Camus and for Jean-Paul Sartre in, in many of their early writings. Um, I think in Tarkovsky movies you can, you can see it uh, definitely as well, that it reflects uh, particular uh, social historical moments and a lot of the discussions that uh, that I had with this particular group of nihilists would also center around these periods of time or the music or the literature or the films that came out uh, surrounding particular uh, historical periods or political situations even. Uh, that kind of, I mean, I think that that inspire uh, a sense of even meaninglessness or nothingness or... Uh, or pessimism, and I think you can, we can see it today. I mean, there is also uh, even in academia. I mean, there, there's a lot of writing on pessimism and doubt and uh, themes like that today. Whereas ten years ago, a lot of people were writing about hope, which was kind of the Obama effect, 
where now we have a, a, a Trump Brexit period that inspires other kinds of, uh, of, of, of themes for, for artists especially to, to engage with. Yes, and a lot of it, whether it, you know, whether it's um, academic writing or you know commentary in the media, or whether it is uh, you know fiction or music, whatever, a lot of it's trying to process and come to terms with you know developments you've been talking about. Or conversely, a, a lot of it, particularly in, in um, consumer culture, is actually to move away from it, to deny it, yeah. to, to just cover it up and just drown it out, pretend it's not happening. Yeah, well, you can have, I mean, you can have post-punk and disco as two, <laughs> two central, uh, uh, genres in music, uh, existing at the same time. Um, well, I mean, from the nihilist perspective, you would say, well, well, disco and, and, and these kinds of genres is, is people who are trying to remove you from actually engaging with the meaninglessness of life. I don't know if you're familiar with the subculture electronic music called Vaporwave or whether you've ever read work like Simon Reynolds' uh, Retromania, for example. But I think, as far as we've been talking a little bit about music, I think as far as where we are right now, it does seem to be like a, just consuming itself uh, in terms of you know, popular music, in terms of uh, looking back and recycling the past and completely unable, mm. unable to imagine anything new. Uh, and mm. I think there's kind of like a fear of the future, at least a, a huge degree of uncertainty. I thought... That this that this tendency was kind of reaching a bit of a, a peak as we move towards the year two thousand, the turn of the millennium, and I thought, well, there's understandable reasons for that. This sort of thing kind of happened, at, you know, the turn of millennia in the past. They had their own manifestations of this, and when we get into the twenty first century, there'll be kind of like a bit of a okay, we kind of got through that. Y two K didn't happen, and we can we'll be able to begin to move forward. I mean, I understand a lot of the limitations on our society, and we're not going into some kind of techno-utopian future, but we'll at least be able to move forward and work with what we've got. But no, it's just got worse. It's absolutely yeah. got worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, I mean, I think if, 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 uh, if, if we take, I think, the situation today from a, a Nietzschean perspective, I mean, he would say we have a, uh, something that's emerged along with, with the political situation today or something that might even have promoted it is that there is a sense of what he would call uh, of active nihilism as opposed to the passive nihilism that I mainly describe in the book, which is that we have a, a situation of what he would term values without a world. So we are not really, we're interested in, in things being different, but we're not interested in what that difference will be, which means that people will actively vote against something without voting for something. So if we take, I mean, Trump and Brexit as, as two main Themes. I mean, a lot of people, or a lot of people would argue that, I mean, Trump won because people voted against the established system. Uh, they didn't know what would, I mean, what would come. They, Trump is basically a question of, of, of form without content. I mean, it's a spectacle. But there's no actual political content in it, and people readily accepted that being the case. They just wanted something different. And then they got something worse, I think a lot of people would also argue. Um, but also with Brexit, I mean, that was a vote not necessarily, uh, it wasn't a vote for anything. It was a vote against the EU. But no one really knew what would happen afterwards, which is this kind of a classic example of, of, of active nihilism. Um, whereas the passive nihilism would just be a, 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 a detachment from it, saying, well, the world doesn't make sense, so why should I participate in it? Why should I vote at all? Yeah, exactly. There's different types of sort of active nihilism. There are people have often spoken about commentators have said about what would happen if some of these um, extremist terrorist groups got their hands on 
biological or chemical or nuclear weapon, would they use them? And I'm thinking, well, they probably would. There's people out there who just, they want whatever is around them or whatever is bothering them just to stop. They would just do it anyway. It would just be like, mm. we don't know what's going to happen here. Just pull the trigger. You know, it was a bit like at CERN, you know, when they first activated the Large Hadron yeah. Collider. Yeah. And somebody said, oh, it might cause, you know, the, the universe to implode. You know, well, do it anyway, you know. <laughs> yeah. <And> so <laughs> yeah. there's that type of attitude of like, it, it doesn't matter. And yeah. a, a lot of people, myself included, are kind of kill yourself by all means, but just leave, leave me alone. Yeah. There's also a kind of uh, what I think you've referred to as like hedonistic nihilism, which is mm. we've touched upon several times, which is a lot of people, particularly in Western or Western type societies, consumer societies, they're definitely craving something. I think they would hesitate to call it meaning, but there's this kind mm. of wait, waiting for these improvements that we talked about. And you, you mentioned something in, in the book again called Sunday Neurosis, which I recognize yeah. very well. And a lot of people suffer from that, but there's a, the the other side of that coin is Friday feeling, which is kind of you get to the end yeah. of the week, you know. No, yeah, it's the yeah. weekend. You must be, you know, yeah. if you live in a city and work in, you know, uh, you, you'll understand how that dynamic works, how the week is structured around all of that. And yeah. then it comes to Sunday and it's, oh, God, we have to we have to go back to this. And mm. I, I think I first started contemplating what's, what is this for when I was relatively young because I, I saw this dynamic first at school, but I saw it also with adults, which is kind of we had billions of years ago, the earth was a molten mass. At some point, we had the opportunity to construct um, a society. And what we ended up doing was over a period of tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of years, we've made one where most people, most of the time, are unhappy. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> maybe one or two days of the week, they get drunk. Things look a little bit better for a while. They look a lot worse when they're hungover. And then they do it again. What Pink Floyd called quiet desperation. Keep, yeah. Keeping yeah. on, keeping on, you know. Yeah, and it does. I mean, I think that is it. It is definitely also a theme for many of the people in in, in my book. That I mean, they do have what you would call rec- I mean regular lives during the week, and then they kind of meet up and do nothing. Uh, so you kind of you save up again. <laughs> you save up spaces for not for not doing anything or for doing a lot of things for being um, a hedonist in a way that you can't do in in your everyday life. But that it is exactly also this dynamic that leads people to question of of all the possibilities. Uh, how did it end up like this? I mean, from this uh, molten lava in uh, billions of years ago. I mean, with all the millions and billions of possibilities of what a society could look like or how it could have ended up, how come how come did it end in a way where I sit at a desk five days a week and then have two days where I'm not? Which, in, I mean, where you could say, well, that, that, it doesn't make sense that things should end up like that. Um, or people can look at a political system and say, well, why, why is it like this? I mean, couldn't we just have something else without really engaging in what that something else should be, but just wanting something else? Well, if we think that we're the only game in town, that the only intelligent life in the universe is right here on Earth, then maybe, even if it's not actually, but it's ended up like this but it hasn't ended if you see what i mean it's not over yeah, it's not yeah. over yet who knows what the future yeah. what the future might bring um uh, nothing or otherwise but there may be uh you know a bazillion other possibilities around the universe where people aren't maybe maybe people are just working at desks two days a week and then five days mm. a week to get drunk or, or other variations yeah uh, but yeah, there's always, there's, there's increasingly a feeling, isn't there? I, I mentioned earlier about the, the changeover with the, with the millennium, that possibilities are kind of feel like they're being shut down. Now, it, people feel more restricted. It's kind of like wading through treacle. Mm. People are talking less. Uh, well, they're doing two things, actually. 
people are either talking in very negative terms about the future and they're very focused on the, the ground right in front of their feet right now and just putting one foot in front of the other and not optimistic as a rule. At the very best, they just want to survive. And then you have the, and this is practically, these people are up there with, with religionists. You have what I touched upon earlier, the techno-utopian thinking, which is kind of like mm. the future is going to be bright and shiny. And that's just a way of kind of overshooting the current kind of quagmire that we find ourselves in. We seem to have been, in terms of existential questions, we seem to, as a global society, have been here before to some extent. But each time we move through a, a period of challenge of, uh, you know, of, of collapse and renewal, everything seems to kind of like re, in terms of human society, reconstitute itself on a bigger scale. Mm. And maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's part of evolution. So, once again, we find ourselves here now, some of us trying to look to the past or learn from the past, but feeling that we're in a position, challenges, whether they are psychological or whether they're physical, that we haven't quite faced before. We don't feel that we've necessarily got all the tools to, to move forward. Mm, but you could also pose the question, I mean, because I, I completely agree. I think there is a, some kind of cycl cyclical movement in this. I mean, again, if we take the, the, the period after the, the Second World War and the, the question of, of French existentialism, uh, or even just going back to the, to the 70s in Europe, which wasn't, uh, uh, necessarily a, a positive era either. Um, but, but the question you could pose is, I mean, why haven't we learned yet? I mean, why do we always end up in this position, uh, of, 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 of kind of relative hopelessness? Uh, where we've been fed up with people saying, well, things will be better at some point. And then we come to a point where it hasn't really become that much better. And we start questioning uh, 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 either existence or we question politicians or uh, politicians are elected that actually make things work rather, worse rather than better. So but, but the question is, why, why, why are we so dumb that we always end up in that kind of position? So do you think this is where, for some people, the question arises, or the idea arises, like, why do we keep trying to make it better? Why do we keep thinking it'll be better? Just stop. You know, it doesn't mean, yeah. it doesn't mean accept everything being terrible, but if we stop this constant, you know, attempts to like reach for something, then maybe we could, mm. we, we could kind of have some kind of stability. Well, in a sense, I do. I think, and I think there is a, I mean, I think in, in relation to what I think I mentioned earlier, this, this idea of growth, for instance, that, that things have to be more or, uh, or better or uh, constantly, I mean, which, which is really the capitalist drive that has shaped uh, our history for, for a very long time, that it, it reaches these points where it's really difficult to conceive what more will be or whether more is, 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 is necessary. Uh, and, and I think that's where, I mean, there is a positive aspect of, of, of discussing meaninglessness and nothingness and, and nihilism and saying, well, do we actually need more? I mean, do, do, couldn't we just stop <laughs> and then make, make the best of what we have? This creed, this religion of perpetual growth is getting us into deeper and deeper trouble. But still, you know, again, we, we persist with it again because it's, a, it's a, basically a fundamentalist religious worldview of how things mm have to be. Arguably, this could be just the human condition anyway, but I think that we're increasingly into an era of, of mental growth. Uh, so I think that's the frontier, the next frontier for mm. uh, human growth, human potential. And it doesn't mean that uh, all and everybody has to participate in it actively, 
But I, I just think that's, that is the field of growth endeavor. And that's what we should focus on. And I think it'd be very interesting to see how things would change if we did that. And obviously there's always been a section of humanity who have made that their priority. They've seen that as the, you know, the ultimate realm of humanity and being. And if there is any of meaning, I was watching, uh, rewatching on television not that long ago, a movie, I don't know if you've seen it, Children of Men. It's based on a well-known novel. The bottom line of that movie is that at some point, uh, basically the human race becomes sterile from a reproductive point of view. And the society descends into chaos and violence, basically like some kind of totalitarian police states. And society is falling apart because it appears that the human race is going to die out, therefore it's all over. You know, as if that was the whole universe, was just us on this rock. But for the people, a lot of people consciously or subconsciously in the movie, in the story, meaning has gone, purpose has gone, and for some reason it then quickly decays. Uh, st- mm. Stagnates, declines, decays, and ends up in violence. And I remember reading a similar theme. I mentioned these just a couple of cultural artifacts, that's all. I remember reading a novel by Brian Aldiss uh, called Greybeard, and a similar scenario in that novel, human race becomes sterile, and that doesn't quite descend into violence, but people just lose their their focus, uh, their drive. Uh, a lot of people just basically become insane, kind of passively insane. They're not running around mm. killing people, but they just they just go gaga, you know, everything because meaning is gone, purpose is gone. So it seems like we, on some level, I, I find this undeniable that we we crave meaning, whether wrongly or rightly. And that some people would say that we cannot thrive without it. The question is where you derive any meaning from and whether you call it meaning, you know, whether you view it as, as meaning or whether, you know, for, for example, someone who has a nihilistic point of view, whether they in themselves, that can be their meaning, that can be their, mm. their purpose. Yeah, which is, I mean, what you would call the nihilist conundrum. I mean, can you, <laughs> if, if you, if you declare yourself as being that, then in a sense you would say you found meaning in, in that declaration. Um, but I think you, know, you can also see examples of literature that, that, that takes, in a sense, the opposite view. I think, uh, something like, uh, Yana Teller's novel that I, I think I also mentioned in the book, which is just called Nothing, uh, which, which in a sense tells the opposite story of this group of children who, um, who get obsessed with finding meaning. And who actually, I mean, that also escalates into violence in that search. So I think there are these opposite poles. Uh, of of people who, um, in a sense, who 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 fall apart uh, or go against each other in the lack of meaning, but also people who do it in in this extreme search for it. Um, and what the exact middle position is, uh, I'm 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 not sure. I don't have a <laughs> um, uh, yeah I I don't have a, an idea for what that would exactly look like. Um, but I think it is this middle position between. A kind of nothingness and a kind of something, uh, where you have to acknowledge the existence of both at least. I think that a lot of problems for people in all of this, uh, in a denial of meaning, and even those who sense inherent meaning, although they can't quite grasp it or understand it, is a sort of a fear of the implications of meaning mm. as to like how we should live. That if some kind of meaning did reveal itself, then that would be like, oh my god, okay, so we now have to step up and live up to this. Let's just say there was some kind of inherent evolutionary drive in the universe that we're a very important part of. Then we'd have to ask, well, if we did do nothing, and if we 
I mean, could that be part of that evolutionary drive? Could that have an important role? Or would we need to do something else? Would mm. the evolutionary drive be best served by human beings and other life forms doing very diverse things? So maybe some people would deny meaning. Maybe people would, some people would pursue it. Maybe that diversity would, would give the best chance for evolutionary expression, if you see what I mean. But yeah. I think one yeah. thing, for all that people kind of crave meaning, I think they also are afraid of responsibility and the idea that they actually have control over their lives. And that's how I personally feel. I think we make our own meaning in a way. And I mentioned earlier about the idea that happiness flows from within. And we choose how we see mm. the world. And it's just my personal perspective. Uh, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Well, I think I'm, I'm like you. And even though I've been been working with this theme for a series of, of years now, I'm, I'm also... In a sense, I'm, I'm undecided about what what meaning uh, what meaning might be. Um, I think, in in terms of uh, the moving forward, I think the central aspect is that um, that one doesn't one thing doesn't come to take precedent over another. I mean that it doesn't become too focused on particular kinds of meaning, um, but also that I mean complete engagements with with nothingness. Uh, in terms of really doing nothing or, or, or abandoning procreation or whatever it might be. I mean, it kind of obviously also won't lead us anywhere. Um, but I think this constant reflection about uh, how we perceive meaning and how we perceive nothingness are at least an important step uh, in, terms of if, in terms of not getting stuck with either one of them. Okay, Mark. Well, today we've been discussing uh, your recent book, an anthropology of nothing in particular that's uh, widely available uh, all the usual outlets do you have a web presence is there anything you're working on uh, is there anything at all you'd like to share before we sign off uh, well I'm I'm working on a new book now on the prefix on um, which in a sense is, a, is an extension of, of this book I mean the way things move uh, towards being something without uh, quite becoming it but that's going to take a few years Okay, wonderful. Well, Martin, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. And thank you for the invitation.